This morning we are in Mark chapter 9. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn to Mark 9. How many of you consider yourself to be competitive? uh, Yeah, a lot of you. Okay. And some of you are pointing at others. Okay. So whether it's a board game, whether it's a full contact sport, you are there to win. Yes? You understand. Jesus' disciples, as I read the Gospels, it seems like they were pretty competitive. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes. But Jewish society at that time was very much into rank, sort of a pecking order. You may remember that Jesus told a parable in Luke 14 about going to a feast. And there was a specific place you were supposed to sit based on your importance, your status. So that was big in that culture at that time. And probably it's, it's big in a lot of our lives today. But in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus had then, and he still has, a different idea for his disciples, for those who follow him. And that is that whoever wants to be first must pursue the last place and the least place. So we're going to explore what that means today. Is it not just nobody likes me, I don't like myself. It's not that type of thing, but rather that I want to put others ahead of myself. And we'll explore that as we go. Would, would you, hopefully you've had a chance to find that, would you stand with me? And I'm going to read our passage. This is Mark chapter 9. And today we are beginning with verse 30 and going to verse 41. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we confess our need this morning for you to explain your word to us. We read in this passage that once again, your 12 disciples whom you had chosen didn't understand, and in their case, they were afraid to ask. But Lord, we're asking this morning that through the help of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our hearts to your word. You would help us to get it. You would help us to understand what we're reading, what the words mean, what it meant to 
the disciples whom you were speaking to, what it meant to the first readers of this gospel that Mark has recorded for us. And Lord, beyond that, we ask that you would help us to apply this to our lives. Your Holy Spirit has been given to lead us into all truth. And so we're asking, Holy Spirit, help us today. Show us where we're doing well in these areas. Encourage us in that way. Show us where we're falling short in any of these areas. And reveal to us our next steps in order to turn from our sin and turn back to you. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would empower me to preach your word clearly and boldly this morning and that we would have hearts and ears ready to receive it, that we would get it loud and clear this morning to know what you have for us and what you want us to do with it. May we be doers and not just hearers today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Wilmington is a Coast Guard town. That's what the sign says anyway, right? So we have Coast Guard stations in, in Wilmington, out at the beach, down in Oak Island, and so on. How many of you know what the motto of the Coast Guard is? Exactly. Raul and Brenna, okay. A few others. What is it? Go ahead and say it out loud for me. Okay. There we go. They're giving it to us in Latin and English. This is a good little Latin lesson. Let's, let's all say that together. Semper paratus. And what does it mean? It means always ready. You say, what does that have to do with our sermon? As I was studying this week, my main points have the word ready in them. I believe that we as followers of Christ need to be ready, always ready. Ready for what? And let me just say up front, those of you who are taking notes, bless you. I'm going to add to these by the time I get to the end. So if you want to give yourself room, that's fine. But we must be ready Number one, ready to die, verses 30 to 32. Number two, ready to serve, verses 33 to 37. Number three, ready to follow, verses 38 to 41. So we as followers of Christ, if we claim the name of Christ, if we are his follower, if we are his disciple, then we need to be ready in these areas. We need to be ready to die, ready to serve, ready to follow. So let's work back through our passage, starting with that first point. As followers of Christ, we must always be ready to die. Verse 30, then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. When it says he passed through Galilee, I believe, and many scholars believe, that he is coming from Caesarea Philippi. He's been in that region up to the north. We have studied over the past few weeks. He took three of his disciples. He was, went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transformed. So he was in the north. That's where this section began back in chapter 8. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gave that great answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one, the anointed one, the sent one from God. All that has happened in the north, and they're making their way back south through Galilee, where so much of his ministry has taken place. But this time it says he doesn't want anybody to know. Why not? Because he's afraid? No, I don't think that's it. 
he doesn't want the distraction of the crowds. Probably doesn't want the persecution of the crowds either, but he doesn't want to be sidetracked because his main mission by this point in his ministry is the 12. He is teaching them. That's what we've read over the past few weeks, the chapters that we've been in, that he is teaching them. He is preparing them. Why? Because he knows that he is headed to Jerusalem. His time is short with them. He is going to be crucified. He's going to rise again. He's going to be around. They're going to see him a few times in that 40-day window, and then he's going to ascend back to his father and we know 10 days later, send the Holy Spirit. But he's not going to be with them physically any longer after these events have taken place. So he knows the time is short. He is urgently wanting to spend time teaching them these things. Now, verse 31 of Mark chapter 9 is the second statement that Jesus makes to tell his disciples, I am going to die. That's the purpose of what he's telling them. And the verse numbers weren't inspired. They weren't in the original, but we have them. And it just so happens that chapter 9, verse 31 is the second time. Chapter 8, verse 31 is the first time he told them that he was going to die. So I'd like to take just a minute and compare these for us. In Mark 8, 31, you can scroll up or turn back to read it. It says, and again, departing from, I have the wrong verse, don't I? I'm in the wrong chapter. Let me try again. Chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I've underlined there the verbs. I'm not saying you have to do that, but just so that we understand, what's he telling them? The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, rise again. That's the first time. That's chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31 that we just read today. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. So what are our verbs there? Is being betrayed, will kill, is killed, rise. Here they are together, just, just taking those verbs out. In this case, it's more of a contrast. It's more of a here's what's different than here's what's the same. So we have 831, suffer, be rejected, be killed, rise. 931 is being betrayed, will kill, is killed, rise. So what's the new information there? What do you think is the emphasis the second time he's telling him? What, what's the new information? It's the betrayal, isn't it? And whether you're talking about English or Greek, this is a passive verb, is being betrayed. What does that mean? It means that there's an action being performed on, in this case, Jesus, without stating who or what is acting on Jesus. And you might see that and say, well, goodness, all, the, all of the lists of the disciples always emphasize that Judas is the one who betrayed him. That's true. Judas did betray him, turned him over to the religious leaders who turned him over to the political leaders who put him to death. So that's true. But I, I think probably that's not the emphasis here. So your translation may have betrayed, it may have delivered, it may have handed over into the hands of men. Who's doing the handing over? I think probably it's God himself. God the Father. And there are a few different verses we could look at. I'm going to show you one of them. Romans 8.32 has that same word delivered or betrayed. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him, that, that's where it is, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's from Romans 8.32. Who delivered Jesus to be crucified? 
Ultimately, God the Father. Ultimately, God the Father, which in our human relationships, that, that seems crazy, that seems absurd. But that is the plan from before time began. That was before creation. It was settled. The Father and the Son, this is how redemption is going to work. This is how it's going to take place. So God the Father allowed his son to be betrayed by Judas into the hands of those other leaders. And after he makes this statement, twice this time, he talks about killed, killed. That word is repeated here. After he says that, Mark tells us they did not understand. And we've read the rest of the chapter. We've read the rest of the book. We've read the rest of the New Testament, many of us. So how can they be so dumb? How can they be so dense? Remember, we've talked about this over past weeks. What were they expecting? They were expecting a Messiah who was going to be a political leader and overthrow Rome, who was going to bring the kingdom of God on earth right then. That's what they expected. So for him to say, I am going to die. I heard one person describe it this way. Whoever your political person is, whoever your candidate is, gets elected president. And in his speech, acceptance speech, he gets up and says, thank you so much for voting for me. I'm headed to Washington. I'm going to die there. They're going to kill me. That wouldn't compute with us, would it? And that's what they're experiencing. That the Messiah, they recognize that he's the Messiah. We've covered that. They know he's the Messiah, but they don't understand why he's there. He's there to be the suffering servant. He's there to deal with the sin problem for the entire world. But they think he's there to get rid of these Roman oppressors and to start the kingdom. And that, by the way, is the reason that they're so concerned about who's going to be first, who's going to be greatest. Because they want, well, I'm going to be the premier. I'm going to be the prime minister. I'm going to be the speaker of the house. I'm going to be the military general. I want to be in a place of recognition, a high, important place in this kingdom. And as we spoke, I think, two weeks ago, this idea of rising from among the dead, that just went right over their heads. They didn't understand. They didn't understand how could the Messiah die. That doesn't compute. We don't like that. How could he rise again? Because the resurrection is at the end of the age, and everybody's going to be raised together. They had only the book of Daniel. They didn't have the understanding that we do of a first and a second resurrection. And so it ends that little paragraph with, they were afraid to ask him. Somebody said they understood enough of it to know they didn't want to hear any more about it. They didn't get it, but they didn't really want to know what that meant. And possibly they were hesitant to ask him because it didn't go so well for Peter before, right? When he said, far be it from you, this isn't for you, Lord, you're not going to die. Get, me be, get behind me, Satan. They don't really want Jesus to say that to them. Perhaps that's going on as well. That was our first point, that as followers of Christ, we must be ready, in this case, ready to die. And before I leave that, let me just say, we need to be ready. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm, I'm not ready to die today. Well, spiritually, we should be ready to die, but we should have a mindset, unless we are the generation that is going to be caught up to be with him, which would be fine with me, Every person in this room is going to die at some point. In order to live the way we need to live for Jesus, we've got to be prepared to die. We need to have a mindset that our life is not dear to ourselves. Do I want to be martyred today? No. Should I be willing to give up my life for Christ? Yes. 
That's the first step. What did he say the first time around? He said, if you want to follow me, anyone who wants to do that has to take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It is a call to die. So we have to be ready to die. Even while we're living, we may have lots of life ahead of us, we need to be prepared not to hold our life close to ourselves, dear to ourselves. Second, we need to be ready to serve. I'm in verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. We read the house, and we don't care. Well, okay, they went into a house. They went inside, that's important, because he's talking to just the 12. This is for their benefit. But the house tells us that it was a specific house. It's the house that he keeps going back to in Capernaum. Some people believe this was Peter's house. We don't know that for sure, but that's possible. So they went to the house that they normally go to, and he asks them a question. He says, what was it you disputed among yourselves? Another way to say that is, what were you arguing about? And then it says, they kept silent. Why did they keep silent? Because they were ashamed. And it goes on and tells us what they were talking about. Was Jesus asking this for information because he didn't know? Oh, he knew. So many times in the Bible we see God, even from the Garden of Eden, asking a question. He's not asking for information. He's asking so that the person he's asking will understand what's going on. Maybe he overheard them, maybe he didn't. That's not really important because he's God. He could have read their minds. We're going to see that in a second. I think that may be what happened. But they kept silent because they were ashamed. Why? Because what they had been arguing about was who would be the greatest. So in that culture, rank was very important. And it was very natural for them to be concerned about where do I fall in the rank? Am I a five-star general in the kingdom? Am I a private? Am I just a citizen? Am I a governor? What am I going to be? And they cared. They want to know, where do I fit in? And possibly this argument came out of the fact that Jesus picked three. Peter, James, and John and took them up on the mountain. So it could have been while they're traveling back to the region of Galilee, what were you guys doing up on the mountain for three days or, or overnight or whatever it was? What, what, were you, what were you involved in? What did Jesus... I'm sorry, I can't tell you. You really would have liked it. You should have been there. But I can't tell you about it. He asked me not to tell. There may have been, may have been some pride involved with that. I don't know. Where there's a fight, where there's argument, there has to be pride involved with somebody, right? So they're arguing, who is going to be the greatest? Now, in our society, over the past, I don't know, decade, I don't know how long, the term GOAT, has. what does GOAT stand for? The greatest of all time. Yes. That's what they're asking. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I think it's going to be me. Maybe Peter thought it was going to be him. Maybe John thought it was going to be him. I don't know. Now, the photo I'm about to show you, some of you are going to recognize just like that, and some of you are going to say, who? And that's okay. It'll just tell you what age group you're in in our, in our gathering here. But go ahead and show that, Landon. You recognize that photo? Who is that? Muhammad Ali. And what was he Famous for saying, probably several things, but I am the greatest. 
and he was a great athlete, a great boxer. You could say he was a great influence on society. He, he became somewhat of a political activist. He was very great at promoting himself. Before what we call marketing today, he was good. Very talented man. But was he the greatest? No. He would tell you he was, but he was not. Who is the greatest? Jesus. But his disciples, after he's started to teach them a lesson again, a repeated lesson, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to rise again the third day. Important stuff. And what do they hang up on? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, really. I was better at casting out that demon. Well, you guys couldn't even cast out that demon. They care about who's the greatest. Who is the greatest? Jesus. The Baker commentary says this, Jesus is the living embodiment of greatness because he has made himself last by becoming servant of all. And he calls his disciples to do likewise. Humility, not pride, is the mark of a person who wants to be first and greatest. And how we know that is that you're willing to serve others. So, get the scene. They've gotten to Capernaum. They've gone into the house. He said, what were you talking about back there on, on our walk, on our journey? And nobody answers a word because they're all scared. They're, they're nervous. They don't really want to have this conversation. Verse 35, he sat down, called the 12, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. The fact that he sat down, that's important to us just because that's what rabbis did. It means he's going to teach them something in a more formal setting. I'm sitting down, gathering you to myself. Let's talk. This is important. Pay attention. And at that point, I would love to have been a fly on the wall. I would love to have been able to see their reactions because he asked them a question. He didn't, I guess, press the issue. It says he asked probably repeatedly, maybe asked him and asked him, but nobody answered. So he said, all right, I'm going to sit down. Come on, let's talk. And then he made that statement. And you think their eyes got big? Do you think they looked like deer caught in the headlights? Do you think one of them was looking across the room at the other one? I think it would have been fun to see. Because what this shows is that he knew their thoughts. He knew what they had been talking about. Somebody said Jesus could have answered the question for them. Hey, dummies, I'm the greatest. Let's just settle this right now. I am the greatest, because he was. But is that the way he was teaching them? Is that what he was teaching them? Not at all. Instead, he didn't put the focus on himself. He put it on the one who will serve. You may be familiar with the phrase, last but not least. What Jesus is teaching here is that we need to have the mindset of one who considers himself last and considers himself least. He says, that one shall be last of all and servant of all. John MacArthur said the disciples' concept of greatness and leadership, which of course was drawn from their culture, needed to be completely reversed, needed to be stood on its head, turned upside down. Not those who lord their position over others are great in God's kingdom, but those who humbly serve others. 
one of my other commentaries put it a little bit more succinctly, a little bit shorter statement. Greatness in the kingdom of God, greatness in his kingdom is determined not by status, but by service. The camp that some of our young people go to in the summer, the wilds, has a saying, he who dies with the dirtiest towel wins. The picture of, I'm a servant, I'm going to serve others, I'm going to wash somebody else's feet, maybe not literally, probably not literally, but I'm going to serve others in the lowliest way I need to in order to love them the way Jesus loves them. Now Jesus gives them an object lesson, something they can see, something they can relate to. What's he going to do? He's going to call a child into the midst of them. Verse 36, then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That term for a little child suggests an infant or a toddler, a little kid one who might be in the nursery or possibly in our primary class right now. So he's calling a little child from the home. So we have some definite articles again. Whatever home they were in. If that was Peter's home, this could be one of Peter's children, perhaps. But in all likelihood, the disciples hadn't noticed the children yet. If you go back a few decades in our country, children are supposed to be seen, not heard, right? Well, that was very much the context of that age that children really were looked on as lower than a household slave because an adult slave, an adult servant, at least was useful. And the children are just there. They're kind of in the way. That is the opposite of our culture today. Our culture tends to perhaps go the other direction too far in, in glorifying and making everything be about the children. But at that time, children would be, that would have been the lowliest member of society that Jesus could have drawn on. Well, Jesus was Jesus, so he said, come over here. And he's already sitting down. So if you have the picture, it, 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 we would think, take him in his arms. Probably he, he put his arm around the child. And he wants to get their attention and he wants to show affection to this child, which is a good thing. And he said, whoever receives one of these little children in my name, what does he mean by that? To receive, that's not a word we use that way very often anymore. It means to welcome, to serve, to show kindness to one of these little children. In Jesus' name, meaning on his behalf. On behalf of Jesus, I'm going to show kindness to one of these little ones. That is equivalent to welcoming Jesus himself. And not only that, but the one who receives this one, receives as Jesus would, you receive him who sent me. You receive the Father. What is Jesus doing here? Somebody said this gives dignity to the task of serving others specifically those who can't repay you, those who would be considered less important. Because many of us, okay, I'm supposed to serve Jesus, that's fine. Who's the important person I get to serve right now? That's not the kingdom, folks. The least significant person you can think of, whatever that looks like in, in your mind, that's the person you're supposed to love. That's the person you're supposed to serve. That's what Jesus is talking about. What's more, I wouldn't have known this. You probably don't either. In the Aramaic language, child and servant are the same word. Context determines which one it is. So that's probably a play on words Jesus is making to connect those two. 
We need to have the heart of a child, Warren Wiersbe said. If we do, we'll have little difficulty being servants. And if we have the attitude of servants, we will welcome the children as the representatives of Jesus and the Father. So let me pause right there and make a, a quick application. Those who are serving in our nursery, those who are serving in our primary class, that's not because they can't find anything else to do or can't be in here with the adults. They have a harder job than I do. Because occasionally one of you will fall asleep on me, but you all aren't crawling down under the chairs. You're, you're not doing that kind of thing that I see, that I notice. What's more, the majority of the people who come, you listen politely, politely to me, you, you look like you're listening, you're engaged most of the time, not so distracted, hopefully. And most of you claim to know Christ. The number of believers by percentage in this room is different from that room. Those who are teaching our primary class today have more unsaved people to, to teach than I do most weeks. And that's a blessing that they're willing to do that. They are practicing what we're reading about right here. Those who serve in our children's ministry, those who love on and, and serve our kids. What is he saying? When he says receives not me, that's a little confusing to us in English, but he's saying receives not only me, but him who sent me. So you receive the Father as well. Here's a paraphrase. One of my commentaries said, treat well those who have no standing in this world. So here's some examples. Children, lepers, AIDS victims, the mentally impaired, the physically disabled, the elderly. And when you do that, when you treat well those who have no standing, no importance in this world, you will receive an audience with my Father. What's your attitude toward other people? Well, I know who I like and I know who I would rather not spend time with. That group. Those are the ones we're supposed to serve. Does that mean that you're going to love and hit it off with everybody all the time? No. But it means that you need a conscious awareness. I am humble. I desire to serve like Jesus has asked me to do. I want to serve anyone and everyone, regardless of background, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of skin color, regardless of addiction or sin habit. I want to love and serve as Jesus has commanded. That was our second point. As followers of Christ, we must be ready to serve. So we're supposed to be ready to die, ready to serve. Last one for today. We're supposed to be ready to follow. Verse 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. Now a couple things about that verse. This is the only time in the Synoptic Gospels, that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we have any recorded words of just John. The only words we have. And if you notice that, this one little statement, one sentence in English here, twice he says, who does not follow us, he does not follow us. That seems like that's important to him. He wants Jesus to know he wasn't following us. What's more, it says, not he didn't follow you, Jesus. He said, he doesn't follow us. 
He doesn't do it our way. Are you getting the idea of what this question is really asking, what he's saying to Jesus? Someone suggested that his conscience may be troubling him now because of what Jesus has just said. That his conscience is bothering him because of an earlier incident. So this probably hadn't just occurred. It may have occurred a year earlier. We don't know. But some sort of incident. And it seems that the unnamed exorcist was for real because he was successful. He cast out the demon. He was doing it in Jesus' name. So it seems that this guy was a true believer in Jesus, but for whatever reason was not following along with them because there were the 12 and then there were others who were following Jesus as much as they could, as often as they could, day in, day out. He was not an officially sanctioned disciple. He did not have the official authority to go out and do this in Jesus' name. So that, that's what they're hung up on. So he said, we told him to quit it, to knock it off, because he does not follow us. What does that reveal? That reveals jealousy. That reveals rivalry. In case you haven't caught on, it fits in with the previous section, because what were they arguing about? Within the 12, who's going to be the greatest? Oh, and by the way, we should also straighten this out. These other people who claim to be doing miracles and casting out demons in your name, Jesus, we told them to stop because they aren't one of the 12 chosen. They're not doing it our way. Now, this occurs other places in Scripture. Joshua had been very concerned. You can look it up on your own. I won't take time to turn there. But Numbers 11, there were two dudes with cool names, Eldad and Medad, who were in the camp, and they were prophesying. They were, they were preaching, teaching to the children of Israel. And Joshua was saying, they aren't part of the 70. They're not you, Moses. Let me go tell them to stop. And that wasn't Moses' attitude. Moses' attitude was, oh, I, I wish everybody. All the, I'll read one verse. Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, the, all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. The Bible describes him as the meekest, the humblest man who ever lived. That's his attitude. Oh, I wish everybody would be filled with the spirit and speak for God. John chapter 3. After the most famous part with Nicodemus. We have an interaction with John. John the Baptist. And a dispute came about between his disciples and the Jews. And there's this statement about Jesus. People come to John the Baptist and say, hey, there's this guy, and people are following him, and big crowds, bigger than your crowds, are following him and hearing his teaching. Very famous statement by John the Baptist. Speaking of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. You know what, that's the attitude all of us need to have, that he needs to advance, his kingdom needs to advance. Not me, not my little kingdom, not my reputation, not my fame. So what did Jesus say to John? John, his disciple, verse 39. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Don't tell him to stop. He's saying, someone who is doing this in my name, someone who is a sincere follower of me, just doing it a different way, don't tell him to stop. I liked what David Jeremiah said. He said, anyone working in his name, Jesus' name, 
should be considered a partner rather than a threat. There are lots of other churches in this area, if you haven't noticed. And most of them aren't doing exactly what we're doing this morning. There, there are lots of different styles, flavors of teaching, of singing, all of that. The application I see for us, I'm glad you're here. I hope you'll continue to come here. I hope you are blessed by the way we are worshiping God together and the way we are studying God's word together. But just because other people aren't dotting their I's and crossing their T's the way we are does not make them wrong, and we should not forbid them. We shouldn't say, oh, stop. I wish your church would shrink and die. No. This is a kingdom, and it's not my kingdom, and it's not your kingdom, and it's not Living Word Bible Church's kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of Christ. Now, the one clarification, the one exception I would make to that Doing it in his name means that you're doing it according to a true belief in Jesus and his ways. So if it is a cult, if it is someone who is teaching falsehood, going against the word of God, we don't rejoice in that and we, as kindly as I can say, they can shrivel and die, that's fine. We don't want false teaching to continue. But true teaching, we should celebrate. You mean there's revival going on over here at this school? Yes, Amen. Praise the Lord. This is good. If they are being moved by the Holy Spirit, we rejoice in that. We don't say, oh, well, that, that's a different denomination or that's a different. No. God is good. He has given us his word. And those who are following his word and teaching a true gospel, praise God for that. That's what this is telling us. There's one other thing I'm going to point out here in this section, in verse 40, really. For he who is not against us is on our side. You know what that tells me? It tells me that there's no neutral ground. Okay, either you are for Jesus or you are against Jesus. He almost makes the opposite statement over in Matthew. So the point is there's no middle ground. It's not, oh, yeah, I, I, I think Jesus was a good man. I, I think we would all be happier if we abided by his teaching, but a savior from sin? No. A king who's going to come and take over the world someday? No. There's no middle ground. It's not, oh, I'll decide later. In fact, if I see Jesus coming on his white horse, then I'll change my mind. It's, that's not how it works. Are you for Jesus? Are you against Jesus? Verse 41, he continues the thought just a little bit more, kind of ties it together. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Because you belong to Christ. What is Jesus saying? Acts of kindness done to my followers are as if they are done to me. And I will see and I will reward you. Is that not awesome? He's going to reward us for being his followers and for showing his love to others who are his followers as if it's done to him. You serve one of these little ones, it's like you're serving me. You will not lose your reward. So now I'm going to add those few words or phrases to these main points as we close. 
as followers of Christ, we must always be ready. Here's what we need to be ready to do. We need ready to die to ourselves. Yes, we need to be ready to die physically if necessary for Christ. But what we're going to get to do on an ongoing basis, on a daily basis, is die to ourselves. Number two, be ready to serve others. You say, who? The person you last want to serve? Whoever pops in your mind, oh, I just can't stand that person. That's the person you should be serving. We don't get to this in Mark, but if you read John, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took a towel, he took the form of a servant, he washed his disciples' feet, including Judas, including Peter. We always cling to the fact that he washed Judas' feet. Yes, he did. He also cl- he, he washed Peter's feet, who was going to betray him, deny him three times in the coming hours. Number three, be ready to follow and focus on Christ. And I was trying to figure out a, a short way to say it, but what we've been talking about, that we would be focused on Christ. Again, go to the end of the book of John. And Peter's concerned, well, well what do you mean about John could be here till I come? What, what are you talking about? Focus on yourself. Don't be concerned. Oh, that church across town has this going on or that going on. We're supposed to serve God the way the Holy Spirit leads us to do it, being faithful to his gospel, faithful to his word, and rejoicing when he grants success that is his kingdom success in other places. So ready to follow and focus on Christ. Focus on, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to, best I know how, do it his way. And I'm going to rejoice with others who may do it a little differently. If you're here this morning, or joining us online, and you've never come to Christ for salvation, please remember what I said a minute ago. There's no middle ground. Don't just say, oh, I'll decide that later. No. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. What would that look like? to come to him and believe on him and call on him. Say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've broken God's laws. In fact, I've broken a lot of them. And I can't do anything to make up for that. But Jesus, you came, you died, you took my place. You died on the cross so that I could have an eternity with you. You rose from the dead so that I could have life eternal. And I believe that, and I'm claiming that promise today. That's all you have to do. And it's not in the wording. You don't have to say it just how I said it. But believing on Jesus as Savior. Many of you have done that. So are you putting others, even the lowliest and the outcasts of society, ahead of yourself? Are you serving them? Are you following Christ without worrying about how everybody else is doing it? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something that needs to change in your life this morning, I encourage you to obey him. Talk to, talk to God right now, right where you're sitting. I will ask, is there anyone here this morning, you're burdened about your soul, you don't know for sure whether you're saved, or maybe you just prayed right now when I was telling you how to come to Christ.
if that describes you, that, that you're burdened for your soul or you have called out to Jesus for the first time this morning and you want me to remember you in prayer as I close, would you look up at me or slip your hand up and put it back down? Any Christian that you'd like me to pray for you, that you're doing business with God right now, he's shown you something specific that you want to change, that you believe he wants you to change? Anybody requesting prayer this morning? Yes, anybody else? Father, you're good and you're kind. And you've given us your word so that we would know how you want us to live. And you've given us this passage this morning to know how you want us to change or maybe just what you want us to keep doing. Something that by your grace we're already doing, but we just need to keep on doing it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in our lives, that you would direct those who are making specific decisions this morning, that they would know what that next step looks like, that they would have the courage to take it by your grace. Continue to work on us and work in us, and we would ask that you would work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.